Let's turn to Acts chapter 16 and get into the scripture this morning. Uh, Acts chapter 16 today, uh, we have started a new series that, that is complementing this overarching theme of living as renewed people, uh, renewed life, living as God's renewed uh, people in particular. And as we have talked about this in the past, we've taken a, a few moments throughout the year to focus in on different aspects of renewal. We've talked about the renewed self or the renewed family. And last week we started a, con a conversation about the renewed church. And that's really what we're going to be able to do over the next several weeks. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, we introduced this theme by looking at Acts chapter 2 and kind of the overall overarching description of the church that you find in those early pages of Acts. And used that to set the tone to say that now we're going to spend the next several weeks looking at different stories in the book of Acts that point us to uh, new churches being founded and started and, and what you see in those churches that kind of speak to the renewed church. And we're going to be able to extract certain lessons from those stories that we can apply to our conversation and our context today. So we're, we're going to be looking at the church of uh, Philippi, the Philippian church today. Uh, next week, we're going to look at both some comments about Thessalonica as well as Berea. And then we'll end this little sub-series that first week in September where we're going to look at some comments that Paul offers in his final farewell towards the end of the book of Acts. And all those different things will give us a chance to really kind of read uh, and learn different stories about the renewed church. And so today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 16, and, and I'll just offer a disclaimer as we get into this. There is no one verse that we're reading or one paragraph. I'm, I'm literally taking us through the whole chapter but I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you. Uh, so what I would recommend is just have your Bible open. Uh, we're not going to have anything on the screens this week. And so just kind of follow along. I'm going to try to point you to different references along the way. Uh, but there really, really wasn't just one particular aspect. I love the whole story of what we find here in, in the book of, of, of Acts in chapter 16 as it relates to the Philippian church. Now, we, before we get to the Philippian church, here's what I want you to notice. If you're looking in your Bibles there, the first few verses of chapter 16 uh, really help describe Paul's missionary journey, right? Paul goes on several different missionary journeys throughout his ministry, and you get these different elements of that journey being described throughout the book of Acts. And so if you look there in verse 4, you see this comment that Paul and his companions are going from town to town. And, and as they're going from town to town, they're, they're sharing the decisions that were made by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem, and that the church is growing in numbers daily. You look at verse 6, I believe it's verse 6, and there's a reference to Paul going throughout the region, right? And you see that, again, he's not confined to one particular area. Verse 10 kind of gives you a summary statement of this vision that he's had of the Macedonian man inviting him to come over and speak to them. And Paul reasons and kind of ultimately says, uh, as it is referenced there in Luke, uh, by Luke in Acts uh, 16, verse 10, is that he, we were being invited to proclaim the gospel, to preach the gospel to these people. And so what I'm trying to point out here is, is one of the first things that I want us to kind of have in our minds when we start thinking about what does it mean to be the renewed church. And, and in particular, what I think we see in the very beginning pages here, or verses of chapter 16, is that the renewed church is a missional church. Right? Like it's, it's always on the move. Paul is going from town to town. He's going throughout the region. He's being commissioned and following dreams to say, go preach the gospel here. The renewed church is always on mission because Jesus has sent us. Right? He has extended that great commission. God has sent us with a purpose. And, and so we need to consider that both individually as well as collectively. 
right? To, to understand that that's exactly what renewal prompts us to do, that when our hearts are stirred and we begin to commit this devotion to Jesus and we discern his will and we delight in it, it leads us to go, right? To go to others. And so think about that from both an individualistic point of view as well as a collective one, right? When you think about it just on your own personal experience, what it means is that God has placed you where you are in your life for a reason, Right, like you're in that neighborhood for a reason. In your schools, in your workplaces, in your friendships. Like God has sent you to those people that you might have an opportunity to declare God's love to those that need to hear it because that's what the Renewed Church does. I've been so encouraged lately, um, just in some of the conversations I've had with folks within this church of how God is, is doing that and prompting that. I uh, received a text message this weekend uh, from a friend in this church, and she was just telling me about what God was doing in her life and how he'd been laying on her heart to reach her neighbors and how she'd been praying for those opportunities. And just within the last couple of weeks, the way that God has faithfully responded by allowing paths to cross and conversations to develop that, that allowed, have allowed her to share the hope of Jesus with them, right, and to build those relationships, had another conversation with a man in our church who, through his work practice um, and, and some of the clients that he has and the relational investment that he's been able to offer those clients, that they came to him recently and asked him to baptize them. And, and he had a unique opportunity to do that. And we were talking about it and just celebrating those things. And it reminded me of, of one of the things, and I, I want to make sure we understand when we've talked about our goal for baptism, we've talked about wanting to see 200 baptisms as a church. And I've shared with you before, that doesn't necessarily mean that it needs to take place here, right? But that as a result of our own relational investments in the lives of others that we're invited into these joyful celebrations and we see somebody come to faith. And so to hear stories of what God is doing in those people's lives that I know are indicative of so many of you, right, that, that God is giving us those opportunities to love others, invest in people, right? It could be that he's calling us to go meet the needs of others, to care for uh, the children, to care for our communities, but everywhere that God leads us is for a reason, right, that we have the opportunity to share that love, and each and every one of us on an individual level need to be thinking about where is God sending me, and yet at the same time, we can think about that collectively as a church, right? That it's not just a collection of people that are all doing their own individual things, but that we as a body of Christ say, we want to gather together and we want to, we want to make a difference in this community, right? It, it's, it's why we've donated backpacks to Seminary Hills Park. It's why every week you have volunteers within this congregation that come and sort food and deliver food to people that need it. And you should hear their stories, Right, like we're not just dropping off bags of groceries on porches. We're connecting with people. We're getting a chance to hear, how can I pray for you? We're, we're hearing when people are sick, when, when people have gotten new jobs, people have come to faith because we're delivering food. Right, you, you think about the opportunities that we've talked about as a church. Even last week, Brian's coming before you and talking about the fact that our church has, has been going to Cambodia and a chance to take the gospel there. Many of you could come and share stories about the times you've gone to Guatemala and helped build a home for somebody. Why? Because God has sent us. And so one of the things I want to establish at the front end of this series when we talk about what does it mean to be a renewed church is to understand that to be a renewed church is to understand to live missionally, to be a missional church. And I say it all, all the time. And it's such a, a powerful thing for us to truly embrace. And I love the ways that God has stirred that up within us. But, but we are not a come and see church. 
We're a go and make church. And I love that. Now you can come. We'd love to have you, and you're going to be able to see some awesome things. But ultimately, when you're here and you do come and see, you're going to hear that message, let's go and make, right? And that's what you see is taking place here. That's the whole reason the Philippian church ever started, is because they were going, because the gospel compels us to go, right? So I love that beginning here in chapter 16. So, so that's what's happening. Paul is living on mission with his companions here, and they get to verse 11 here in chapter 16, and now we begin to see the formation of the Philippian church. And I'm just going to try to summarize the progression here. Again, you can follow along. The, the first thing that we see is that when Paul and his companions show up in Philippi, um, one of the things that they do is they go and look for a place of prayer. And let me give you some context to that. According to Jewish law and custom, you needed 10 Jewish men to form a synagogue. That was the minimum. So any region, any city that had at least 10 Jewish men, they were instructed to form a synagogue. If you had less than that, then you would have a place of prayer. And it was custom, it was custom within the Jew Jewish faith to have that place of prayer typically be near some water, a river, a stream, or a lake. And so when we see that Paul and his companions are looking for a place of prayer, that they leave the city and go to a nearby river, what we're discovering about Philippi is that there's not a high concentration of Jews. You compare this to other moments where Paul encounters the city, his first place to go is the synagogue. Well, there's no synagogue in Philippi. There's not that high concentration. So he, he finds this place of prayer near this river, and he comes across a, a woman that is referred to as Lydia. All right, now let's give some context to uh, this first individual that Paul uh, has a chance to meet. We're, we're told she comes from Thyatira. And one of the things that I discovered in, in researching this this past week is that Lydia was actually an ancient kingdom. And Thyatira existed within this kingdom of Lydia. But eventually, as the Roman Empire expanded, it, it assumed control of this Lydia region. And so it could be that really the way that we could refer to this is a lady from the region of Lydia or the Lydian lady. Obviously, we read it, and it sounds like a name, and so, you know, maybe that was her name, but most likely, this is referring to the region that she's from. And you see a description about this region. Uh, Thyatira was known for its, its purple dyes and its fine cloths and material, and so she had a trade. She was a businesswoman, and she was successful in, in her own business and in her own trade. And apparently, at the same time, she was a worshiper of God, which is a really interesting statement. Uh, not likely at all that she was Jewish, but she was spiritual. And so she's found herself in this place of prayer, seeking God, wanting to know who God is, and that's where she encounters this message from Paul. And, and the scriptures just briefly tell us her heart was opened to receive the message. And as she receives it, there's immediate change, right? She and her whole household are baptized, and then she extends an invitation to Paul and his companions, come stay with us, and she persuades them which tells us a couple of things. She, she immediately recognized their need and wanted to use what God had given her to address those needs, which is indicative of some of the things we read last week about the early church. And she welcomes them into her home, and it's most likely that her home then becomes the hub for the Philippian church, right? That this is probably where the church began to gather. So that's your first convert for the Philippian church. Now then you move a little bit further, and you see that a slave girl is introduced to the story. Right? We don't know exactly how much longer. We don't really know the full duration of time that they spent in Philippi. But the next thing we know, a slave girl is also uh, at this place of prayer, and they encounter Paul and his companions. And when she uh, is described in the Greek text, it says that she has a Pythian spirit. 
Okay, and now that's translated for us, at least in the NIV, is to say that she had a demonic spirit where she could tell the future, or a fortune-telling sort of spirit. And so let me try to make that connection for you. Uh, the python in, in this point in time, in, in uh, uh, ancient Rome and things like that, was a, a serpent or a dragon that was affiliated with Apollo and was seen to be the protector of both the temple and the oracle of Apollo. Over time, the word python became associated with anybody that was demon-possessed and had the voice of the python. So the easier way to translate all of that is what we see in our text was that she was demon-possessed and could protect or, or could foretell the future, right? And so when she sees Paul and his companion, she declares that these men are servants of the Most High God who have come to explain the way of salvation, right? And that's, that's like, you know, like this shouting that she gives, this moment that she sees them. And that's reminiscent of what we see in a lot of exchanges with Jesus and demon-possessed individuals, right? That the demons respond and declare him to be the son of God. And so in some ways, it's inferring the similar authority that Paul and his companions now carry as they're going through these uh, regions, that they, they have that same sort of authority and recognition uh, in their journey that Jesus had. And so it kind of validates their authority. But over time, what we discover, it's, it's real subtle as you read it, she doesn't stop saying it, right? Like, I'm sure the first time Paul's like, thank you, That's, we appreciate that. But apparently she just never stops. It says it over and over and over again for days. And so it, it, we read this really interesting development where it actually says, at least in the NIV translation, that Paul was annoyed, <laughs> that because of his annoyance, right? Um, what was interesting about that and studying that word is that it could also be translated as grieved, and I, I feel like maybe both definitions could probably apply to the situation, right? I mean, if you think about somebody shouting the same phrase over and over again, day after day, it would be disruptive, no matter what the content was. It was disruptive to Paul's ability to build relationships, share the gospel, preach this message, and so there had to have been a level of annoyance with what was taking place. And yet I think Paul actually knew what was going on, right? That this, this was a, a slave girl held in captivity to this demon, to this, this particular situation, and so he was grieved by the situation as well. And so he turns to her and he responds, and he, and he tells the demon to come out, which it does, and she's completely healed. And, and what we discover with that healing is that this actually upset quite a few people. Now, it, we don't have an explicit statement, but it's, it's reasonable, again, to assume that now this healed slave girl becomes the second convert of the Philippian church. But the problem that this creates for Paul and his companions is that the people that owned this slave girl are now out of money because they were making a ton of money of her being able to go from place to place to do all this fortune telling, right? And so now Paul has taken that from them and so they're angry and so they seize Paul and his companions and they bring him before the authorities. And, and notice what they do though, right? The, the real motive within their hearts is you just took a, a significant chunk of our income away from us and we're upset about it. But what they say in front of the authorities is, hey, these Jews, these men are Jews, they're, they're going around and they're teaching a bunch of unlawful customs for us Romans to follow. And they put them in, in front of these authorities and the authorities decide to punish them. And so as they are, are uh, receiving this kind of accusation, notice that the punishment that they receive is to be uh, stripped, beaten with rods, flogged, and imprisoned. I want that to sink in, right? Like, 
they just healed someone. They're sharing the gospel. And they were stripped, beaten with rods, flogged and in prison. And, and this is something that's hard for us, right? Because when we think about persecution for our faith in our context, we can't really relate to that. Now, sadly, a large number of our brothers and sisters around the world actually can. But we can't. <clears throat> That's difficult. And so the best we can do, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> is to try to inject ourselves in the text and imagine what that must have felt like. And so I want you to do that for a moment. Like, picture yourself in that prison thousands of years ago, stripped beaten and flogged because of your faith. Like, how would you respond? What would you really think and feel in those moments? What, what frustration would you have towards God? What anger, what confusion, what hatred maybe to those who did it to you? And yet, what do we see them do? In the middle of the night, after going through all that, they pray and they sing. <laughs> they worshiped God. And I want to use that as another point about the renewed church. What do we find in a renewed church? In a renewed church, we find people that understand that you can worship even in suffering. Right? That like all of our tears, all of our heartache, any injustice, any betrayal, any wrongdoing, any, any pain that we experience can actually be an avenue for worship. And that's what the renewed church understands is that when we always have a reason to sing, even in our suffering, and that's on full display there, and as they are worshiping, all of a sudden an earthquake comes through and it, and it breaks open the prison doors that knocks off the shackles around their hands and their feet and they have a free opportunity to escape but they don't take it. Now the jailer that was keeping guard doesn't realize they haven't taken it. He comes to and realizes that, that the doors are open and he begins to prepare himself for an incredible amount of shame and disgrace that he can't bear. So he actually gets his sword to prepare to fall on his sword to end his life so that he doesn't have to face the shame and disgrace of letting these prisoners go free. And so as he prepares for that act, Paul calls out from within the jail cell and says, don't harm yourself, we're all still here. <laughs> they didn't take this opportunity to leave. And I can't help but think that they didn't because they knew about the jailer. They had him in mind. And because of this remarkable decision for them to stay put, this jailer is so stirred by it, and likely because of the stories that he had heard, he turns to them and his first question is, what do I need to do to be saved? And their answer is, believe in the Lord Jesus and be baptized. And then it tells us that they began to open up all the word to him, which tells us, again, that he didn't have a Judaic background. They, they began to explain the gospel and who Jesus was and what he did. And here's easily my most favorite part of the entire chapter. When the jailer hears this gospel, the first thing he does is he washes their wounds. And I love that. It says he washes their wounds and then he was baptized, he and his whole household. Probably from the same well, right? Probably from the same water source. What an 
incredible picture of transformation. And so the jailer is now the third convert for the Philippian church. The next day they come in to say, we're going to release Paul and his companions. And this is where Paul kind of reveals, hey, I'm actually a Roman citizen and everything you all just did to us was illegal. And so we're not going to just walk out of here quietly. We want to be escorted out. It's a pretty significant response because now they realize that they've made an egregious mistake. And so by asking to be escorted out, he's making them own up to this mistake. He's he's having them really kind of come face to face with their own immorality, their own injustice, their own sinfulness, really. And so they're escorted out of the prison and the chapter ends with them going back to Lydia's home to encourage the church before they move on to the next spot. And this is how the Philippian church began. It's an incredible story, right? And, and I love it. Now, there are three main takeaways that I want us to extract from this account of the Philippian church in Acts chapter 16 uh, that helps us understand what does it mean to be a renewed church. And, and these points that I want to quickly cover, they're not new, right? These aren't anything that you haven't heard before, but, but they're such a beautiful reminder, especially when we consider them from the lens of what we've just read slash heard. Right? And so here's the first thing that I want us to be reminded of when you think about the Philippian church and, and really the renewed church. It tells us that the gospel is for all people. Like, think about, think about the eclectic mix of this congregation. You have a business owner, a slave girl, and a prison guard. And, and that's the beginning of this congregation. From all different walks of life, from different backgrounds, different experiences, and that's where this church begins. Started by Jews, by the way. And and just that simple picture should remind each and every one of us the gospel is for all people. Man, I had a chance to sit down over lunch this past week with another couple, and we were talking about our experiences overseas, and it made me reflect upon my time as a missions pastor and I shared with them over lunch, like probably one of the greatest takeaways from that season of my life and the opportunity to travel to all these different countries, whether it was Niger or Sierra Leone or Indonesia or China or Japan, I mean, you, <clears throat> you name it, the list is long. Everywhere I went, I saw the gospel at work, right? This gospel is for all people. There's not a single corner of the globe, not, not one group of people, not, not one culture that we say it's for everyone but them. It's for everyone, which is why God has sent us, because he wants all people to know him. That's why he's placed you in those neighborhoods and in those schools, in those workplaces, because the gospel is for those people, and he's sending you to take it to them. The gospel's for everyone. And and while that comes with a certain responsibility of us being able to be entrusted with that task, I want to make sure that we don't miss the other side of it that we can often fall victim to. And just on the off chance that anybody is in here today and has somehow fallen into this idea or these thoughts because of different circumstances or situations that somehow you've convinced yourself that it's not for you. That maybe God has forgotten you, doesn't love you, doesn't hear you, doesn't see you. I want you to think about everything that we just read and be encouraged once again, the gospel is absolutely for you. It's for all people. And the renewed church never loses sight of that. Now coupled with that is the second point. Not just that it's for all people, but it transforms all people. 
right? And I think that's super important to, to never lose sight of when we're talking about the gospel, right? That, that it's not just, hey, come on in and stay as you are. It's come on in and be changed. Come on in and be transformed by this incredible gospel message, this hope and saving work of Jesus Christ and his lordship. It transforms all people. When you read through Acts chapter 16 and you think about these three different stories of transformation, that, that transformation is outlined sometimes somewhat implicitly, right? It's not as clear and sometimes it's really explicit, right? So, so think about it with those three different interactions. With Lydia, it's, it's a transformation that's probably a little bit more implied, mainly because we don't really know a whole lot about Lydia before the fact, right? All, all we really know about Lydia is, is where she's from in her trade, but I think it's still worth noticing that her response to the gospel after receiving the message of being baptized is to use what God has given her to meet the needs of others. Let, let me open my home. Come stay with me. And it becomes the home that is likely the hub for this church. Right? And so whether that's a drastic shift from who she was before or not, it doesn't really matter. It, it, it tells us that that's what happens when the gospel gets a hold of our hearts. It helps us see the needs of others above our own and to use what God has given us to meet the needs of others. Think about what Paul encourages the church to do in his letter to the Philippians. Do nothing out of vain conceit or selfish ambition, but rather consider other people's needs better than your own. Right? And that was on display with Lydia. That was a, a definitive transformation that we see at the very beginning of her response to this gospel. Now think about the slave girl. This, this is a transformation that is explicitly stated, right? I mean, we see exactly where she has gone, this, this incredible um, life of really what could be referred to as double bondage because she is held captive both to the demon that has possessed her as well as to her owners. And when the gospel finds her, the transformation she experiences is liberation from both. Right? She is set free from those who owned her and the demon that possessed her. And that's an incredible reminder to you and me that, again, the sort of transformation we're talking about is a liberating transformation. It sets us free. And so I wonder, like, what are the things that are holding us captive? What are the things that, that hold you captive that we need to be reminded of God's liberating power again today? So easily we can become captive to worry or stress, or fear, or anger, distrust, hatred, lust, greed, right? We're constantly fighting off this captivity of sinful desires, and the gospel liberates us from those things and calls us to liberate others. That's the sort of transformation that the slave girl experiences here is this liberating uh, freedom that comes only through the healing work of Jesus Christ. It's part of why we have renewal. It's part of why we talk about this all the time is that we recognize all of us walk around with some level of captivity and bondage, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is here to set you free. And so what do you need to be set free from? Let's embrace that sort of transformation that comes through the liberating declaration of the gospel. And then the third piece with the jailer, I would probably classify his transformation as a moral transformation. This is part of what makes me so compelled by that part of the story. It, again, we don't know all the details. We don't know exactly what role he played, but he is officially a representative of the state, right? The state that was responsible for inflicting those wounds upon Paul and his companion. 
And I can't help but wonder, was he actually directly participating in that act? Did he hold the rod? Did he hold the whip? Whether he did or didn't, he represents that. And so the transformation we see in the jailer is he's going from someone that was inflicting the wounds to washing them. (laughs) What a remarkable transformation. And a reminder that that's what the gospel compels us to do when we're a part of a renewed church, right? That all of us make mistakes, and a lot of times our mistakes cause wounds in the lives of others. But when the gospel gets a hold of us and renews us, There's a shift, there's a transformation where we stop inflicting wounds and we start washing them. So incredible transformation that's taking place. So the gospel is for all people. The gospel transforms all people. Here's my third and final point. The gospel unifies all people. I think that's probably the greatest testimony of the Philippian church when you really begin to break it down is it is an incredible expression of unity. And that's really what we see time and time again in so many New Testament examples of the body of Christ was an unbelievable unity. People that typically didn't affiliate or associate with one another coming together in Jesus Christ. It's incredible. And I I think that's something I want us to really reflect upon as we kind of transition towards the end here this morning is this idea that unity is the work of the Spirit, right? Disunity is the work of the flesh, and, and we live in a context, I'm not just talking about church, I'm talking about society, I'm talking about our country, I'm talking about our culture. There are so many examples where we can see the work of the flesh that creates disunity. And the way it typically works is something happens within our own heart and our mind that allows us to label someone else as the other. Right, like that's, that's what happens. And it could be driven by fear, paranoia, frustration, like pick, pick, a, pick an emotion, But something happens that allows me to look at another individual or another group and now I label them as the other and that's the work of the flesh. That's where disunity begins. Because as soon as somebody's an other, well now I can put all sorts of of accusations and labels against them. And so the devil is going to prey upon that fleshly impulse and sow seeds of division to where people start looking at each other as other and, and then praise upon that by using different things that we encounter. There's so many different strategies that the devil can use to create this. And there's at least three that I think are on display in this particular text. And they all relate to things that we see in our context and our culture. Let me hit them real quick. Okay, here, here are the objects of disunity that were on display and essentially overcome by the gospel in the Philippian church. The first is race and ethnicity. All right, because the Lydian lady... Uh, is from Asia. She's an immigrant. Okay, so, so Philippi as a whole was cosmopolitan. It was a melting pot, but she wasn't a native. She was an immigrant, right? She, she was a foreigner. The slave girl was likely Greek. Okay, the jailer, Roman. Paul and his companions, Jewish. So all these typical dividing lines of race and ethnicity that typically drive people away from one another were confronted in this story and in this church. Look at even that moment where Paul and his companions are arrested and brought before the authorities. Look at what the charge is. These men are Jews. That's the opening line. I'm gonna accentuate their race and how bad it is for us Romans. Right, the the accusation is preying upon the anti-Semitism that existed in that culture. And that's what worked to get them convicted and beaten and imprisoned. 
right? You, you, you have this incredible conglomeration of different races and ethnicities that typically would not associate with each other now coming together in the Philippian church. What a great reminder for you and me. Because we live in a world, we live in a country that is constantly confronted with the issues and the tensions of race and ethnicity. Right? We, we can find numerous examples of how that continues to plague our society and pulls people apart. And so the renewed church needs to look at that and say, actually, the gospel transcends that division. And here within the body of Christ, we unify. Right? We're not going to define ourselves based on the color of our skin, but in the lordship of Jesus. Right? So you see it transcend race and ethnicity. The other thing you see is an economic transcendence that creates unity in the story. Right? Lydia, the Lydian lady, a trader in purple cloth, one who has a home to welcome all these people in, by all accounts, is, is most likely fairly wealthy. So she's going to be at the upper end of the financial spectrum. At the very bottom of that spectrum is where you're going to find a slave girl. It doesn't get lower. She had no possessions, no material items. She didn't even own her own life. It was the bottom of the spectrum for her. And somewhere in the middle is the jailer, right? For lack of a better term, he's the middle class, right? And, and all these economic causes and realities would typically drive people away. And we see that in our society too, don't we? Like, like we see that time and time again, the, the, the income gap that continues to just widen and widen and widen, right? I left the statistics. I forgot to bring them up here with me, but I was researching some of these uh, data points uh, this past week and Pew Research had documented that over the last 40 plus years, like from 1983, somewhere around there to 2016-ish, uh, we have seen that income gap just continue to widen itself, right? And, and then the amount of money that is made in the upper class versus the lower class just continues to exponentially increase. And, and the reason I'm pointing that out is because what that means is, is that the way we begin to function in society and culture as a whole is in segregated areas based on income. Right, because that's gonna determine what neighborhood you live in, what neighbors you have, often what schools you go to, what jobs you have, right? And all of it is often divided by wealth. And that income dis disparity that we see in our culture creates these chasms that allow us to then point to people as the other. Because we don't affiliate with one another. We don't, we don't go to the same schools, live in the same neighborhoods. And so I can easily point to somebody in that spectrum and, and blame them for all the reasons that things are wrong, or never want to affiliate with them because of the reputation that I need to maintain, whatever it is. And what the renewed church does and says, none of that matters. It doesn't matter how much you make. We're not going to define ourselves by our economic success. You look at the Philippian church, and that sort of avenue towards division is transcended, and it says, no, the gospel unifies all people. That a business owner and a slave girl are the same under Jesus so it transcends economic division. The last one that I'd point out is a political one. I don't know if that really applies to us today. I feel like we're pretty good politically, don't y'all think? <laughs> pretty unified as a whole. So maybe I can just skip this point. But you know, like, think about it. You, you have the, the Roman jailer who, who had a certain political privilege, I guess you could say. But you're going to have an immigrant that's going to have a whole nother view of, of Roman rule, a slave girl, a Jew. Like all these different folks are going to have different experiences with the political system. 
right? And, and some of them have benefited from it, some of them haven't. And that's, again, part of the beauty of the transformation is that the jailer who has currently been in a place of political privilege is going to reach across the proverbial aisle, if you will, and look at those who haven't had that privilege, who've maybe had a different view, and, and all of them are not going to resist one another because of those affiliations but actually come together. Because they recognize that I'm not going to be defined by politics. I'm going to be defined by the lordship of Jesus Christ. Can we say the same for us? Like that's exactly what the church should be. Because the gospel unifies all people. And so I look at the Philippian church, y'all, and it just is so compelling to me. Right? Like, I mean, I know these are things that we know, but to see it in And this story is so remarkable to be reminded that the gospel truly is for all people. It transforms all people. It unifies all people. Those are the characteristics of the renewed church. And it's what we want to aspire to. It's what we want to live out. And so what does that look like for you? Right? Think about that. Where is God leading you? What is God trying to transform in you? Where does unity need to be pursued in your life? And what does that mean for us as a church, as a family of faith? How do we truly live out this call of being a renewed church that we can truly articulate that in very tangible and practical ways to the world around us? Because as we sung earlier, they're going to know us by our love. And so the way that we love one another, the way that we love this community should consistently communicate to others that this gospel is not exclusive. It's not hidden, it's not argumentative, it's not meant to hurt. Man, it's meant to to embrace, it's meant to bring in, it's meant to change and to heal and transform. Because the gospel is for all people, transforms all people, and unifies all people. I'll close with this, one one final thought that comes from Galatians chapter 3. Because it's an opportunity for us to see how committed Paul was to this sort of idea. And the idea that that this is exactly what compels us to be able to truly understand who we are in Jesus. Right, that we have the opportunity to see how this gospel molds and changes and, and leads us in so many powerful ways. And what we see displayed in Acts 16 is something that he says to all these churches as they're going through this renewal. He says, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. That's your identity, church. That's why we're here today. We're not here because we live in Fort Worth or because we're Republican or Democrat or we have a certain socioeconomic status or a certain skin color. We're here today because we're all children of God through faith in Christ. All of you were baptized into Christ And have clothed yourselves, not through your skin color, not through anything else, but have clothed yourself in Jesus, which is why there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the mark of the renewed church. That's who I want us to be, who I believe we are and what we want to continue to pursue both as individuals and as a church family. And so let us leave here today just, again, encouraged and reminded 
by what we see from our brothers and sisters of thousands of years ago in Philippi and carry that same message today that the gospel's for all people, transforms all people, and unifies all people. Let's be the renewed church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we thank you again for who you are and what you do for us, God. And we ask that you would uh, continually lead us in a way that helps us to live out so many of these same truths that we see exemplified in Acts 16. Help us to truly just embody uh, what it means to be the renewed church. Father, as you send us into different neighborhoods and workplaces and schools and all these other different settings and contexts, let us go to be your hands, to be your feet, to see with your eyes, and to share the love of Jesus with everyone that we come in contact with. We thank you, Father, so much for a gospel that compels us accordingly. We love you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.